Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I think I say in the book that the motto of Rhode Island should be, I know a guy. Winslow's new book, City on Fire, imagines the 80s era of Irish gangsters in Dogtown and Italian gangsters on Federal Hill. I, I wanted to sort of come home in a literary sense after having spent, you know, four decades writing about California and Mexico and New York. The most problems I had was with the police department. They says, what are you doing? You're bringing all these whites into a black neighborhood. The folks in charge and the authorities really thought this is, was a problem and they needed to stop it. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm David Wright. In the pantheon of Rhode Island writers, few have found more success than author Don Winslow. Winslow's crime novels have captured the imagination of millions of readers. His latest work? No exception. We recently caught up with him on his book tour here in his home state. You know about Irish Alzheimer's? No. You forget everything but the grudges. <laughs> Author Don Winslow writes best-selling crime fiction, much of it set in California. Winslow's blockbuster Savages about a Southern California drug war was turned into a movie directed by Oliver Stone, now streaming on Netflix. sun-soaked success that Winslow has now put away to return to his home state, right here, South County. He's from Perrysville in South Kingstown, not far from Matunic. So you are one of the most successful crime writers in America. This is your 22nd book <laughs> yeah. and your first set in Rhode Island. Yeah, how about that? Huh? You finally got around to us. Finally got home, man. Winslow's new book, City on Fire, imagines the 80s era of Irish gangsters in Dogtown and Italian gangsters on Federal Hill. I said it here because, well, several reasons. This is, you know, the area that I know the best. I, I wanted to sort of come home in a literary sense after having spent, you know, four decades writing about California and Mexico and New York, but also because the organized crime world here is intimate. It's small. Everybody knows everybody. If ever there were a place worthy of writing about crime, especially, yeah. <laughs> it's here. Yeah, yeah. You know, but it's funny, as I, uh, I've been on tour and as I travel the country, uh, most people express surprise that there was crime in New England. They do. No, I, I had the same reaction. Uh, they go, wow, we had no idea. I mean, New England, you know, autumn leaves and congregationalist churches and, you know, clam yeah. chowder, but not necessarily organized crime. And so I've sort of had to educate them to that. Whereas anybody who's from here knows from a thing. Knows from Knows it. a guy. Knows a guy. I think I say in the book that the motto of Rhode Island should be, I know a guy. Winslow's well aware of the allure of the crime lord. He's made a very successful career writing about them. I've given this a lot of thought, and I have a number of theories, but here's my favorite. I, I think that, that it's a power fantasy, right? If, if you or I have a problem, right, we have to go through a big process to get it solved, and it might not get solved, right? The noisy neighbor the parking ticket, or maybe we have a more serious sort of injustice. You know, something's been done to our loved ones or to us, and we feel we haven't gotten justice. We have to go through the system. 
and almost all of us do. Not in the mob movies. There's a short, brutal there's path a, to there's justice. There's a short, brutal path to justice. But Winslow adds another wrinkle to this book, adapting his characters and his plot from Homer and Virgil, reimagining the Trojan War on the streets of 1980s Providence. I often say to, to my colleagues in the crime genre, you know, that, that I think we look at our roots in, in too shallow a soil. You know, we always look back to, of course, and we should, Raymond Chandler and Agatha Christie and Sherlock Holmes. Uh, but I also think we can look to Dickens and, and the Greeks and Romans. The book is in many ways a love letter to 1980s Rhode Island, the height of the patriarchal crime family or the, I suppose, the downfall of the patriarchy. Downfall, yeah. And some of the names have been changed to protect the innocent, but how much of it is... is you know, stuff that you know. Listen, it's definitely a, a work of fiction, without doubt. There's no character that's based on any real person. In fact, they're all based on characters from the Iliad and the Aeneid. But of course, growing up around here, as you alluded to, you know these guys. You know, you, you know the culture. They were always around, you know, they were in the newspapers. Occasionally you'd see somebody. So, yeah, I feel I know the characters in this book pretty well. But it's definitely fiction, and there's nobody based on any one, you know, individual. You mentioned the Iliad. I'm surprised at how well Greek mythology lends itself to Roman Catholicism. <laughs> <laughs> That's what started this project, though. You know, I, I, I came to the classics, the Greek and Roman classics, late in life, sort of early, late in my 30s. And I was struck immediately by the parallels between stories and characters in those classic ancient works and real-life crime and crime fiction. In this case, the face that launched the thousand ships, Helen of Troy, is Pam from Greenwich? Is Pam from Greenwich, you know, this, this <laughs> classic wasp, you know, who, who really wants to infuriate her parents, you know, and, and so she starts dating first uh, an Italian mobster and then an Irish one. I mean, the book really begins with her coming out of the water and Danny looking at her. It's, she's almost, not almost, she's objectified, which was the point. Right. of that scene. How they had fought each other, these two immigrant tribes for a place to put their feet. The Irish in Dogtown, the Italians on Federal Hill, toeholds carved out of grudging New England granite. Your main character here is, I suppose, a modern stand-in for Aeneas. Yes. Uh -huh. His mother, uh, Aphrodite, yes. a Las Vegas showgirl. Right. Well, what do, you, what do you do with the goddess Aphrodite in Providence, Rhode Island in 1987? <laughs> you know? I mean, the, the fun of this book and the challenge of this, it's actually a trilogy, these three books, uh, was to find the modern equivalents so that I could make these books absolutely contemporary crime novels that you could read without knowledge of or reference to the classics at all, but still borrow from all those themes. The book is the first of a trilogy. After all, the Trojan War inspired multiple ancient epics. I wrote these books on my mom's front porch uh, because I start work at 5.30 in the morning and uh, I didn't want to wake people up. So I go in the kitchen and I make a quiet cup of coffee and then sneak out onto the porch and sit on this old futon with an old coffee table and a laptop and write books. Wonderful. Sometimes I was like Bob Cratchit. It was cold. I literally had gloves with the fingers cut out and a scarf. And you've written all three at this point? Yes, all three are done. All three are done. And these are your last books? These are my last books. Why? Uh, look, I, um, for several years now, well, since 2016, let's be frank, 
uh, I felt that the country was in a crisis. In recent years, Winslow has been so preoccupied with politics. Trump allies have employed one simple strategy when facing justice for their potential crimes. It's called running out the clock. He's launched a second career in political activism. He puts out videos like this one. When America needed a commander in chief, America got a traitor. I think that, that we need to stop bringing spoons to a knife fight. You know, I think that the other side are bullies, uh, classic schoolyard bullies. You know, they're very, very tough, very tough until you punch them in the nose. Do you think Trump is done with? No. We haven't heard the last of him. No. We ha well, listen, he's sitting on a $100 million war chest. Uh, so, uh, no, I don't think we've seen the end of him. I think, I think he'll probably run. I think if he does, the nomination is his, and we're going to have to beat him again. Are you confident the Democrats can? I'm not confident. I, I think we can. I think we have to. His activism has cost him some readers. If you had to do a Venn diagram of Don Winslow readers and Trump voters, how much overlap is there? Not, not much. I mean, some, certainly. I certainly get the messages of the, what I call, shut up and type messages, you know, from Republican voters and Trump voters who say, you know, we love your crime novels, but we don't like your politics. I, I certainly get much harsher messages than that, uh -huh. you know, uh, every day. I get a lot of hate mail. You're not deterred by that? No, no, I don't care. Now, look, most of these people are physical as well as moral cowards. and. Uh, I can take care of myself so that they don't scare me. So at least until the 2024 election, he plans to quit writing fiction and devote himself full-time to fighting the Republicans. I think we're at an existential moment in American democracy. And I think that I, I just want to take whatever energy I have and whatever talents I have and, and put them to that fight. So you're laying down the pen for the sword? In a manner of speaking, yeah. That's well put. I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> you can use it. Thank you. <laughs> Without attribution. <laughs> Up next, whether you are visiting or a resident of Rhode Island, you can take a tour of its architecture, food, natural spaces, and also its African-American heritage. There are more than 100 sites of black cultural significance in Providence alone. One site was a jazz club that drew some of the biggest names in show business, but it struggled to get recognized and few remember. Back in September, Michelle San Miguel and Rhode Island artist April Brown took us on a tour of this iconic club. We are going to the Celebrity Club, the first integrated jazz club here in New England. The Celebrity Club isn't even here anymore. No, 54 Randall Street isn't here. The building doesn't exist anymore, but this is the approximate location. What made the Celebrity Club so special? In 1949, Paul Filippi, a local guy who really loved jazz music, had the great idea to open an integrated jazz club. Because in 1950s Providence, a segregated Providence, there weren't a lot of places for blacks to meet. And so at the Celebrity Club, black and whites could dance and have a good time. What kinds of artists perform there? Girl, everybody played. Sarah Vaughn, Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, everybody who was known played there. And black and white musicians could play together. So just imagine, the Celebrity Club, this was the place to be. Paul Filippi, who passed away in 1992, cared enough to have a club that would allow people to come together at a time that they weren't doing it. Paul was a real 
pioneer, and I think he had a real directed effort that he wanted to change things, and he wanted to bring folks together, regardless of who they were and their color. I was working with two or three black people, and they used to say how they, well, they wanted entertainment, they went to New York or Boston. If they're going out to dinner, they go to Boston. So I had the, the idea that perhaps a nice little supper club in the Providence area, kidding to black, would be successful. It was just at a time when blacks went their way and whites went their way. He was of Italian-American descent, and there was discrimination against Italians, too. And he always said how he had an affinity with the African-American communities because they both experienced prejudice. He saw it all around him. He saw that prejudice, and he saw that uh, segregation. And I think he really wanted to have a place where everybody could come and feel welcome. And, you know, there weren't places like that uh, even in the 50s in New England. You know, those Jim Crow laws were still there even though they were unspoken, you know, in, in, uh, in the northern part of the, of the country. So on November the 18th, 1949, was opening night. My wife and I stopped at St. Augustine's Church on Smith Street in North Providence and said a little prayer that we wouldn't go broke. And at one o'clock in the morning, when we closed our doors, we were $1,100 richer, and that was the beginning of what became one of the most famous clubs in the Northeast. We were known as a celebrity club, and I brought in celebrities. If you look at the folks that played at the celebrity club and the people that Paul brought in, it wouldn't have worked without those big names that he brought in. You know, imagine growing up in a neighborhood and, and there's these artists that you hear on the radio, listen to their records, and here they are for a week. You know, I mean, I think about this and it just, it blows my mind, you know, if only I get my time machine and go back, that's when I'd go. You know, people like Duke Ellington. Nat King Cole. Louis Armstrong. Sarah Vaughan. Billie Holiday. I gave Sammy Davis Jr. his first big job. This is the place. <laughs> saw this group on television out of Hollywood. Never heard of them before. And it was called the Will Maston Trio featuring Sammy Davis Jr. And I says, my God, God, what an entertainer. And so I sent a telegram and offered him $5,000 for 10 day engagement. He never saw that kind of money in his life. You know, the list is just endless. And musicians, they'd stay for a week and play every night there, and they'd come back, you know, year after year, and they'd be like they were home, you know? Um, so his arms uh, uh, were reaching out, you know, not only all over the country. But he got the best names in the world to come to Little Providence, Rhode Island. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's one of the questions I wish I like, sat down before he passed away, and I was 11 when he died, but I would love to have like, said, Dad, like, how'd you get him? Like, what's the secret sauce? Well, you know, Paul was a doorman at, at a hotel in downtown Providence. Everybody knew him. It was like he was the mayor, you know? He's just so gregarious, um, so well-liked, and I think that went a long way. Also, I think being nestled between New York City and Boston um, enabled him to get a lot of great acts. The entertainment was awesome. That's what you really went down there for, was the entertainment. And somebody different all the time. We would sit there and enjoy the music. And we had fun. Things I offer you. Those were good days for us. And remember, they were in a black neighborhood in Randall Square. So I had no competition. 
because there were no black places. And because I did so well, and because I was so well patronized by the black people, I was able to purchase the property without the influx of whites. The black people supported me. Business was so great that I bought the building and brought in nationally known stars. How the hell could you keep anybody out that appreciated music? Now, it wasn't that an entertainer was black that appealed to just black people. Certain entertainers that were black appealed to whites. I'll be tickled to death when you leave this earth, you dog. I took you for my friend, and you tried to drink up all my gin. <laughs> You're Armstrong was primarily a white draw. The white people would come in because they said, hell, at that type of entertainment's going on at the Celebrity Club, it's got to be a great show, let's go and see it. So I could bring in a Pearl Bailey that would draw primarily white. I could bring in a Dizzy Gillespie that would draw black and white. Now we had what is perhaps one of the greatest interracial clubs the country's ever known. We just figured white people, black people, you know, everybody was having a good time. And I didn't really think about it being an uh, integrated club, you know? And white people didn't say anything about us being in there, and we didn't say anything about them. Paul Filippi, he treated us like we were the same as him, you know? So everybody got along. Yep, it was a great place to go. Paul had uh, rooms upstairs at the club where some of the musicians could stay because black artists, black musicians still had a problem finding a, a good hotel room in, in Providence. There was a black hotel that they could stay at? The hotels that would uh, allow blacks into them was uh, the Capitol Hotel, which wasn't a very nice hotel to speak of, if I may say, and the Crown Hotel did open their doors more willingly or they'd have to sleep in someone's spare room who was a patron of the celebrity club. Even Louis Armstrong, some of those famous musicians in the world, couldn't stay in our nice hotels. Paul was uh, really great in terms of making sure everyone uh, was paid equitably. So black musicians got paid the same as white musicians, and that didn't happen a lot of places. He hired a lot of local musicians to back up an artist that would come to play. He hired younger bands to play in intermissions. Max Roach was playing there. This particular night, we were the intermission band. As they took their break, we would play. And I remember that evening after the gig was over, uh, Sonny Rawls was playing with uh, Max at the time, and he came out and he said, told me I had great potential. Well, at 14, I didn't quite know what that was, but I all I know, it didn't sound like a cuss word. And when I went home, I couldn't get home fast enough to look in the dictionary and see what potential meant. And it was, I said, oh, you know, that was kind of inspiring for me. I do remember that. Paul really opened the doors so that all these kids who became lifelong musicians, you know, they saw their heroes at the Celebrity Club. And that really motivated them to keep playing. There wasn't nothing like the Celebrity Club. Nothing. When the club opened in the late 40s, while everybody loved it, um, there were people that did not, and that was the police in Providence. The most problems I had was with the police department. They says, what are you doing? You're bringing all these whites into a black neighborhood. The first thing you know, the black's going to be downtown. 
And so the folks in charge and the authorities really thought this is, was a problem and they needed to stop it as best they could. So the cops would come down and they would raid the, the club once in a while. And Paul, he just reached a point where it, it just you know was, wasn't worth it for him. But then there was also the change in amplification. So the small supper club was not what the Louis Armstrongs were doing anymore. You know, the, the, the first class, the grade A acts were now, you know, playing to stadiums. And so that kind of led to the demise of the small jazz supper clubs. He sold in 58, but it stayed open as a club for two more years, I believe. And then basically just went out of business. Yeah, we were sad about that. You know, no more celebrity club. Where are we gonna go now? I don't think I ever really uh, knew um, what I was achieving until I think after I opened the celebrity club, I never realized what a great thing that I, I was doing. And, and I'll never forget what a man said to me one time. You went to Randall Square, which was the pit of Providence. It was the worst rundown section in the entire city of Providence. You took over the worst rundown building in the state of Rhode Island. You restored it, remodeled it. You put black and white together, which was unheard of, brought in the world's greatest talent and made it pay. My dad and I were driving through this neighborhood probably when I was like eight years old, and a group of like older black men like just yelled like, Brother Paul, Brother Paul, and stopped him and like surrounded the car and just like talked for a half hour and like they all had tears in their eyes, grown men just reminiscing about what they all did together. So like it, that's my, the story like that was most poignant for me because I saw the emotion. The Filippi family, a citation from the House of Representatives in recognition for their trailblazing efforts to open the Celebrity Club in 1949 as the first integrated my father died almost 30 years ago and to have an event where people are still like coming to me and saying like thank you for your father it was nice meeting you thank you thank you much thank you i will gentlemen it's i don't know how to find the words to explain what that's like the people were just thankful that they had a place that like they could have fun and enjoy life well, the right thing may not be popular, and you have to follow your conscience. And that's what he did, and he imparted on me. He's like, follow your conscience, even if people don't like you. That's how you build a legacy, a good legacy, for yourself, for your family, and for your community. Like all good clubs, they have their day, they have their time, they wear themselves out. But forever and for always, the Celebrity Club will be the place where everybody met and blacks and whites could listen to great music together. It's sad, another example of a historic site and you'd have no idea looking at it. No, you wouldn't. Finally tonight, Lila Alphonse offers this commentary on domestic violence. The pandemic forced many victims of domestic violence to stay in dangerous relationships and Rhode Island's housing crisis has only made the situation worse. It's easy to ask why don't they just leave? but domestic violence is about control and power. The abusive behaviors aren't always obvious to outsiders. 
and many survivors are conditioned to believe that the physical, sexual, verbal, emotional, and financial abuse they endure is unavoidable. More than 32% of women and 25% of men in Rhode Island experience domestic violence at some point in their lives, according to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Once a survivor does decide to leave, resources can be hard to find. With little affordable housing available, survivors can end up staying in shelters for far longer than in the past. And with shelter space at a premium, some people end up couch surfing on the street or sleeping in their cars, sometimes with their children. Organizations that help survivors of domestic violence are struggling to meet the demand. According to a recent report from the National Network to End Domestic Violence, during one 24-hour period in September 2021, eight of the 10 domestic violence programs in Rhode Island served 493 adult and child victims. Hotline staffers fielded approximately six contacts per hour, and the requests for help that they didn't have the resources to meet 93% were for assistance with housing. One survivor named Elizabeth described to the Globe how she quickly packed small bags for herself and her 13-year-old daughter before calling 911 to ask for help, leaving the man who had abused her for more than a decade. They stayed at a hotel for nearly three weeks thanks to a temporary program paid for by the Rhode Island Coalition to End Homelessness, but ended up staying with a friend, squeezing into his tiny one-bedroom apartment. It's not a stable situation for anyone. In April, Governor Dan McKee created the Domestic Violence Working Group, a task force aimed at addressing domestic violence in the state. And the governor has proposed putting $4.5 million in American Rescue Plan Act funding towards housing and support services for victims of domestic violence. It's a good step. One hopes it's not too little too late. Our thanks to Lila Alphonse. That's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm David Wright. I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly or listen to our podcast available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thank you and good night. Thank you.